0: It's very hard to prove collusion because of its essence. It's hidden. It's covered. It's something that uh, isn't that, is, that isn't written down. Uh, and there is evidence that um, knowledge of what Jackson was up to went right to the very top. But people chose not to see. I mean, if people see things, their targets, ordinary. People. They didn't target Republicans. They didn't target IRA men or Sinn Fein uh, members or workers. They targeted ordinary people. People who've done dreadful things in the shadows would get away with it. We don't know for certain that we're going to that the that the culprits are going to be held to account as they should be, uh, or even held to the light like they should be. But we know that if we don't try, we wouldn't get anywhere.
1: Um, and thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for sitting down and joining me. I, I appreciate you taking the time. Um, just before we get into the actual Glenning gang themselves, the various members, the collusion, can you tell us a little bit about your own background and how it is that you came um, to be writing a book?
0: Well, I was brought up in Britain and as usual with most pe- British people, I had no... Uh, education at all about Ireland. I knew a lot about British history, but I knew absolutely nothing about Ireland. In fact, I didn't even know until I was well into my teens that Ireland was a separate country. I kind of assumed it was still part of Britain. So when I found that the the Irish people had their own stamps and their own coinage and their own government, indeed, it was a bit of a surprise. It wasn't even, I thought it was like Scotland and Wales sort of thing. But anyhow, um, I came to live in Ireland in 1981. Um, because the biggest news story of the time was the hunger strikes. And I was a rookie newcomer to journalism. And as most rookies and newcomers want to make a name for themselves, so did I. So I came to live in Belfast. I came to Belfast on holiday to start off with. Um, I spent a week in Belfast and a week in Dublin. I was here. I was actually in Dublin when Bobby Sands died. And it was totally not what I'd expected I didn't know what to expect, really, but whatever it was, it wasn't what I expected when I came to, to to be here for those two weeks. And I made up my mind then and there to apply for every job there was available. And I did get a job in the end with the BBC starting in, 19, in the autumn of 1981 in Belfast. And since then, I've worked for a lot of media outlets, including RTE and Reuters and various other organisations, both in radio and newspapers, and a bit of TV, but not much. Um, and I quit journalism in... I covered the conflict from 81 onwards, and I then I covered the peace process as well, and uh, the signing of the Good Friday Agreement and all of that. And then I quit journalism in 2006 because my husband was diagnosed with a terminal illness, and I realised I couldn't be a journalist and look after him. So I quit and went to work for an organisation called the Pat Finucane Centre, which advocates on behalf of families who want to find out more about why their loved ones were killed during the conflict. And particularly focused on state abuses of human rights. And I worked there for 14 years and I retired in June this year at the ripe old age of 70.
1: Well, c- congrats on, on on your career and, and, and retiring anyway. W- well done. It, it was um, it, it was quite a time that you covered, you know. You, you you said you started like beginning of the eighties. The the troubles were 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 well heated up at that stage and had like kind of like the best part of two decades left in them. You know.
0: Yes, I, at one point I was what the, the BBC called their their radio fireman. That is, that if there was any big event in the middle of the night, I was the one that was called out to go to it. So I would set off in my car on my own, not knowing what I would find when I got to whatever it was that happened. Whether it was a bombing or a shooting or whatever, I covered um a lot of a lot of the rioting and a lot of the conflicts around the orange marches, and I also wrote a book in the in the early two thousands about the Holy Cross dispute in North Belfast, where loyalists blockaded the young Catholic girls from attending their school every day, which was a truly shocking event. The world's media was there until until 9 11 when they all disappeared off to new york for obvious reasons but it was a very shocking episode in the history of the north sectarianism laid bare i wrote a book about that called holy cross the untold story and then as you rightly say i wrote lethal allies british collusion in ireland uh, that was published in 10 years ago almost exactly october 2013 and it sold very well It uh, and i've I visited the state. I've done three book tours of the states, and I've given evidence to various congressional committees in Washington, etc. And uh, a good, good lot of support from Irish America.
1: Very good. Um, on that topic, um, when did uh, if you can remember when did you first become aware of, um, of, of of I suppose collusion between loyalists and the British state, and indeed the um, the the gang that you ended up. Uh, writing a book mainly about the the Glennon gang. When was your first um, uh, time becoming aware of of...
0: Well, there was always allegations of collusion, mainly from Republicans. But because there are allegations, there was no evidence or little evidence. Um, And it did seem incredible that the state would collude with loyalist paramilitaries in the carrying out of, of murder. So although I was open to the possibility that collusion was taking place, like most other journalists, I had no evidence. So, in the absence of evidence, most of us thought that it was just Republican propaganda um, to try and denigrate and uh, and uh, criticize the state. So, and I also found the idea of collusion um, repulsive, frankly. Uh, the idea that the state would use its considerable influence and authority to collude with killers was horrific horrible i i i I, there was something in me that repudiated it that it couldn't possibly be true and when i joined the pat panookin center that was very much my frame of mind so when the first thing they asked me to do when they told me i would got the job was to write a book about collusion uh, my 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 tummy fell through the floor i was horrified first of all i didn't think it was possible to prove Secondly, I was repelled by the idea of collusion. And I didn't want to um, lose whatever reputation I'd ever gained as a journalist and destroy that, writing a book about collusion that was just allegations without evidence. So I didn't want to do it. I absolutely didn't want to do it. And it, was, wasn't, it wasn't until I saw the evidence that the horrific truth dawned on me that this was not Republican propaganda, this was this was actually true. Um, and it was uh, a labor that was very, very difficult for me to go through with, to write the book. It took me over four years and uh, it, was, it was something I never wanted to do. It was just a task that was thrust upon me. If I could have turned around and walked away, I would have done, but I'd accepted a job. My husband was very ill. Uh, We needed an income of some sort. I certainly wasn't going to walk away from it instantly. Uh, But it took a lot. It took a whole huge amount of reading and listening and learning and talking and thinking before I became convinced that collusion wasn't propaganda. It was true. It actually happened. And as an English person, uh, believing, as I did at one point, that my government um, was the that uh, that was the oldest democracy, and that justice and law were were base elements in the state. It was very hard for me to cut to, to accept. Um, I come from a very um, I come from a very solid background in terms of my father was in the army, so was my mother. My brother was a police officer. My sister was in the army when she was younger. So I came from that kind of background, and it was very hard to come to terms with the fact. That the things I had believed in, that implicitly believed in ever since I was a child, um, were open to question, to say the very least. And that the state had played a very sinister role in its, in its involvement in Northern Ireland. It wasn't easy. None of it was easy. But uh, I did write the book, thank goodness. It was the hardest thing I ever did, but I'm very grateful now that I did do it, because it's something of a legacy that I can leave behind me.
1: Right. Um. We'll we, we'll get into it, but 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 mo- most of the collusion, I I think, covered in the book, um, came from the RUC. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, and um, the RUC stands for uh, uh, Royal Ulster Constabulary, which is which were at the time is now the PSNI, but 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 they were they were the police force in in Northern Ireland. Um. Just for a bit of context, can you give us a bit of an idea of the relationship that existed between the RUC and the Catholic community and the RUC? And the Protestant community, because it was quite a different, um, it was quite a different relationship they had.
0: It's just just before I get onto that, I'd just like to say that an awful lot of the research upon which the book was based was carried out by my colleagues in the Patagonian Centre before I came on board. They asked me to write the book, but they'd been working on it for years before that. So although it took me four years to write the book, there was at least a previous four years to that before I even came on board. Now to your question about the RUC. Well, when the state was created, when the two states were separate, when partition happened, the um, RIC in the north, in the six counties of Northern Ireland, became the RUC, the Royal Ulster Constabulary. And the intention was to have a a proportionate membership of the RUC, Catholic stroke Protestant. But pretty pretty soon, um, the unionists would say that it was due to intimidation. Um, Nationalists would say, that it was because they didn't they didn't um, associate themselves with this new state that had been created, but for whatever reason, gradually Catholics became less and less part of the RUC. A smaller and smaller proportion of them were in the were in the RUC, and um, in the end, it ended up being about ninety three percent Protestant, seven percent Catholic, um, and the experience, the lived experience of Catholics during the conflict of the IUC was very much that they were, they were there to enforce the state, a state that nationalists didn't feel to be they were part of. Indeed, a state in which nationalists felt to be second class citizens. Uh, whereas the unionist population would see them as their police force, unionists very much did see the police as being, the bulwark against republicanism, against the united Ireland, whereas Catholics, the Catholic experience of the RUC was a sectarian one, by and large. Um, that's not to say, and I certainly don't say, that all police officers in the RUC were biased, sectarian, intimidating, threatening to Catholic people. Um, indeed, they were not, but a significant proportion of them were. And uh, the, the nationalists most certainly did not Uh, owe their allegiance to the state or to the RUC defending it. Um, And there was also, of course, as well as the RUC, there was the Ulster Defence Regiment, which was the largest regiment in the British Army at the time, very much mainly uh, uh, recruited from within the Protestant community. And the RUC and the UDR were the face of the state as far as nationalists were concerned. And it was a state that they found very hostile. And that they did, they could not feel that they owed their allegiance to.
1: Um, yeah, again, just for, for anyone who might know, um, that there's a bit of a like an, an alphabet soup that that goes on with. the... Well, there
0: is, yes, it's very uh, confusing for people.
1: Yeah, I mean, okay, so. so uh, the, yes.
0: the UDR, the Ulster Defence Regiment, were the legal. Um, arm of the state in Northern Ireland they were recruited mainly from within the Protestant community not to be confused with the two main loyalist paramilitary groups. I'm sorry about this, it is confusing, which were the UVF, the Ulster Volunteer Force and the UDA, the Ulster defense Association. They were the illegal paramilitary well, the UDA wasn't illegal and there's there's, there's a point to be made about that, but they were the two Protestant paramilitary groups. Uh, The Ulster Defence Regiment, the UDR, was the legal um, army, they wore all uniforms, they mostly, um, their jobs were mostly um, in stopping, patrolling, stopping and searching cars, that sort of thing. There were certain areas of Northern Ireland where they didn't operate because uh, those areas were seen as being too sensitive, including some of the rural parts of Northern Ireland, particularly the West, and West Belfast and, and the Catholic areas in 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 built up areas they would they did not operate there um, by and large do
1: you 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 mentioned there briefly you did you say that the, the the uda actually wasn't it wasn't like classed as um as like 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 a terrorist group or or an illegal group? yes
0: the uda the uvf goes back to the first world war when the old uvf the uda were more recently created um they weren't made illegal until 1992. Right throughout the conflict, uh, they were a legally constituted organization. Um, all the, when the UDA carried out sectarian murders, they invariably claimed them in the name, they used a name, the Ulster Freedom Fighters, but that name only existed uh, as a nom de plume when or nom de guerre when they were carrying out murders. The British government, we now know, we found documents declassified documents in in the files in London that show that that uh, the British government was well aware that the UFF didn't exist. What existed was the UDA, but they persisted in refusing to, to make the UDA illegal. And the UDA, despite the fact that it was carrying out murders and the British knew they were carrying out murders, remained legal until 1992. We found a document dating back to, I think, the mid seventies uh, where the writer is a, a document written by a civil servant to be sent to other civil servants and to politicians, where the civil service writer uh, says that the UDA is, is uh, the UFF is essentially a fictitious organization. Uh, that is, so they knew right from the word, from the get go. That the UDA was carrying out murder, but they refused to de- they refused to ban it in the way that they banned, for example, the IRA. Although they knew that the UDA it was carrying out murders, plenty of them.
1: I see that 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 brings us on a little bit to, to what I wanted to ask you next. What would be from all your research um, and and speaking to people and everything, what would be like the earliest um, examples of collusion between? the RUC British Army and Loyalists. I mean, your your book focuses on uh, 72 to, to 78, which was, I mean, the, the troubles kind of began v- very late 60s. So I guess the, the, well, the, the first
0: the first reference we can find in the files to collusion is in 1972, which was the the bloodiest year of the conflict. Um it was built. And then the the floodgates burst in 1972. 400 people were killed, or 400 plus people were killed, I think, in 1972. We found a document going back then, right to then, where where the writer records that document that um, sorry, not documents that weapons were going missing from British army bases and from police stations, and that collusion was suspected. That the, these these uh, weapons, high quality weapons. We're going missing from, uh, and I, the word missing should be in inverted commas, we're going missing from police stations and, ba- and British Army barracks, and were, we're turning up in the hands of loyalists and being used to murder Catholics. So that 1972 was, although the, the conflict started before that, it was the bloodiest year of the conflict. And so, I mean, it goes right back to the very start. And we, we have evidence going right back to that date that although the British knew that collusion was happening, they weren't prepared to do anything much about it. They, I think they made their minds up pretty early on that they couldn't fight this war on two, on two fronts. And the loyalists and the British, their, their political aspirations dovetailed. And so it was pretty much inevitable, I think, from the word go, that, um, that the state and the state's organs and apparatus and 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 organisations and and armed wings were going to favour the loyalists in this dispute, not the republican side.
1: I see. Um. So yeah, speaking of seventy two, the the first the first killing that's attributed to uh, the group known as the Glennon gang, um was in was in seventy two, I believe. And for for anyone who doesn't know, can you fill us in a bit on who the Glenengs were, their formation, kind of yes. what they did, their members.
0: Yeah. Well, first of all, it's a misnomer. <laughs> the way that you you think of a name for something or someone and it sticks, or even though it's not particularly accurate. And the Glenan Gang gets its name from a little village in South Armagh called Glenan where some of the gang members were were based. Um, but it is a misnomer because other members of the gang came from counties Tyrone. Uh, and and down, uh, it's not, and and their operations uh, went as far south as Dublin and as far north as Pomeroy in County Tyrone. So first of all, it's a useful shorthand to call them the Anne Gang. But first of all, the Glen Ann bit isn't uh, very really accurate, although it was one area of their of their activities. And secondly, the word gang isn't really uh, accurate either, because because um, they were not so much a gang uh, of a consolidated gang of a limited number of people all working together, that was more disparate than that. It was permutations of the same people. There were links between all of all of the people, but they were they didn't operate as a cohesive gang. They were they shared weapons, they shared intelligence, they they shared direction. Uh, but they weren't. It would be wrong to think of them as a gang in the in the way of a street gang in New York, for example. Um, they they all they wouldn't necessarily even have known each other. They may have known of each other, but they operated in various spheres of influence, as north as as Tyrone and as far south as South Armagh. North Armagh, the the Portadown area was another uh, particular area of influence and also a, a part of Dungannon. Called Moygashel was another area they were very active in. But uh, for for shorthand, yes, we call them the Glen Ann Gang. And they were there was a group of people, a disparate group of people, who operated in the mid Ulster area, as far north as Pomeroy, as far south as Dublin. Um, and um, they, uh, they shared weapons and intelligence. And they were op- they operated between 1972 and about and the and 1976, around then when When I think at that stage, the British themselves realized that they were in very dangerous territory, and um, the gang was split up. but but the collusion continued. Collusion continued right the way through the conflict, right up until the very end. It changed its nature. The nature of the Glenand gang was one of the things that we found particularly interesting is that the Glenand gang chose as their targets, ordinary, people. They didn't target Republicans. They didn't target IRA men or Sinn Féin uh, members or workers. They targeted ordinary people. Um, One of the things we did when we were researching the book was we took the names of all of the people killed by the Glen gang and we listed on one side of a piece of paper those who were very just very unlucky that they were killed at random. And on the other side of the piece of paper, we listed those who were targeted who were killed precisely for who or what they were and of all of those who were targeted who were who were singled out for death uh, only one had republican links every single one of the uh, all the others were ordinary people they were businessmen but there was some there was something particular about them they were all doing well they either had businesses of their own or they were they bought a bit of land maybe or they were building a house Somewhere there were people who were upwardly mobile, you know, who'd gone um to secondary school, who perhaps had gone to university, or who were just very enterprising and hardworking and who had built up businesses. So these were the sort of people that the Glen Ann gang targeted. It was particularly pernicious because the we believe that the intention was to terrorize an entire community, um, all those people in the nationalist Catholic community who were demanding uh, equality, demanding civil rights, demanding their national rights, indeed, and, and um, demanding their economic rights as well, and who were doing well and who were upwardly mobile and had their own businesses, were building their own houses, maybe. Those were the people that the Glen An gang targeted in order to terrorise everyone else who fell into that category in the community. And it, it kind of fits in with... Um, There's a strategist that most, if not all of your listeners may not be aware of, called Sir Frank Kitson, who was um, a military strategist, a counterinsurgency strategist, who's written a series of books. And he had many theories, one of them being that the law should be used in the counterterrorism context as just another way of disposing of unwanted members of the public, and that's a direct quote from his book. But he also believed that if you couldn't, he was uh, on behalf of the British, he was saying, if you can't catch the fish that you want to catch by rod or net, then another way of doing it is to pollute the water, to poison the water. And we think that his counterinsurgency strategy was, was that, and he's written about it, that if you can't catch the people you want to catch by rod or net, then you poison the water. And that is the context that we see the Glenand gangs targeting a victim's being, that they, they, he, that they were poisoning the water, they were terrorizing an entire community into, with, into reducing their demands for national rights and for civil rights, for economic rights by terrorizing them. if you If you lift your head too high over the parapet, you are going, we are going to get you. It was as brutal as that.
1: Um, th- there were th- there were a few kind of more more well known members of the gang, but but one um, who was actually an RUC officer and who ended up um, who ended up providing a lot of a lot of the evidence that that kind of broke broke the case. I think was a man named John Weir. Um, can, can you tell us? Yes. A little bit, John, John Weir.
0: But John Weir was um, was a Protestant from south of the border who joined the RUC and became a member of its special patrol group, which was an elite outfit within the RUC. He was involved in at least two murders that we we know of, one one of which he was convicted for. Um, But I think when, when he went to jail, I think he began to feel that he was a scapegoat for... Uh, he was being used as a scapegoat for, um, others within the same force as he was. And he began to talk and he gave interviews to people and he made claims and he wrote an affidavit in 1999, uh, which he stands by. And, and he's, he's currently, he was one of the sources for the book and the film of the book which was called Unquiet Graves which can still be watched online via uh, journeyman pictures if anyone's interested and he's still alive and he's living in south africa um, and he was he was a member he was a member of the Glenarm gang and has spoken openly about it and he says that collusion is much more wide widespread than has than hitherto thought um, and uh, there was also um another Person of of interest in this field was a former UDR man called um, Robin Jackson, who was also an RUC, a paid agent by the RUC, and also Jackson. a prolific killer, the Jackal, known as the Jackal. Yes, he's he's now passed to his reward. Um, I leave you to to imagine what reward that might be in the next life, but he was a particularly prolific killer, and he was he was an, he was being paid by the RUC and he was uh, singling out people to murder for years and years and years and lived what we call over here a charmed life you know that he was involved in many things but somehow seemed to evade detection for much of his career as a paramilitary uh and though and uh, most people over here have never even heard the name robin jackson um and most people probably over there in america have neither but he was he's dead now but he was he was a prolific killer, and he was being paid by the police. We're pretty. We're, we're, I'm. I'm. I'm pretty sure he was being paid by the IUC. It's very hard to look at the evidence and not come to that conclusion. Um, but that would still be disputed by many people. But as far as we're concerned, having seen the evidence and read the evidence in heart, in black and white, um, and the reason that we have the evidence, I should say, because collusion is unique in in crime because there's no such crime as collusion on the on statute book. Um, it's very hard to prove collusion because of its essence. It's hidden. It's covered. It's something that uh, isn't that is that isn't written down. You, you know, you don't write down that you're going to. You know, no loyalist or policeman would write down on a piece of paper that we're colluding to kill so and so. So it's it's a it's a crime in which the criminals are in, are in control of the evidence. And as such, it's very hard to prove. Um, but we, we, the the evidence that we did get on and on which the book is based was there was a period in in Northern Ireland's history after these after the ceasefires and after the Good Friday Agreement was signed, when the then Chief Constable of the of the newly formed Police Service of Northern Ireland or PSNI, whose name was Hugh Ward, he he was getting fed up of his men. Constantly being asked to investigate the past, so he set up a new organisation. He called it the Historical inquiries Team. Um, it was arranged that former police officers from Britain would be hired to do the investigating. And so Hugh Ward wanted to focus his uh, career as chief constable on current crime um, and preventing crime and result and uh, solving crime. So in order to hive off all these inquiries he was being asked to involve himself in about that happened during the conflict in the past, he created this new organization, the HET, the Historic Inquiries Team. And they were all security vetted former policemen who'd reached retirement age, but were still, you know, in their 50s and 60s and still very capable. And they were security vetted and they got access to the files, to the archives that people like me would be barred from. and. Some of the people who worked for the HET were time wasters and useless, but others of them were very dedicated, good people. And they we, we that is the Pat Panukin Centre, um, worked alongside them and, uh, and gave them our support. And they went into the files and, and found uh, the murder files that we were interested in and produced reports for the families that we were advocating for. And as a result, we got hard evidence of collision from within those files that we could not have otherwise have got access to. And we also got information from, there was an inquiry south of the border in Dublin called the um, Baron Inquiry, which was an inquiry into the single most, um, the Dublin Monaghan bombings where 33 people died in one day, <laughs> in one day in 1974. And the Barron Inquiries, they... Got evidence as well from within the RUC archive, and we got our evidence, our hard evidence from them.
1: Um, I I wanted to ask you there. You 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 mentioned briefly. You you said that the it's it's very strongly um it's a very strong allegation with with proof behind it that Robin Jackson was being paid um by the RUC. When, when you say paid, like it like he was he was receiving a paycheck. Um,
0: well. We believe he was, yes. We can't prove that, but we believe he was. But quite aside about him being paid, he was working hand in glove with the RUC people, we believe. The evidence for that comes in, it's all very, the problem with trying to prove things is you have to be very precise, and I don't want to bore your listeners to tears, but if they go to the PFC, the Pat Finucane Centre website, and and uh, Google, oh sorry, put in the search box, put in Miami Showband, which was the uh, an attack on a on a showband in uh, July 1975, I think. Right. Uh, they will find they will find um, evidence there, taken from an a report written by the Historical inquiries Team, the HET. That we think proves the fact that he was working alongside the police some members of the police not as i said all but some it doesn't take very many
1: no of course of course if if you're a police officer you you're in a very powerful position in terms of um in terms of how you could help um a, a paramilitary group and um, just on the on, on on robin jackson as well I, I was looking through his wikipedia and i saw um. It it was sourced from from a newspaper article, but but, but I don't think there was much else on it. There's rumours that he was even trained at one stage by the SAS and that MI five sent him, sent yeah, him to South Africa
0: to Is there any, any truth to that? Not that we found. Not that we found. There is so many. There's so much said about Robin Jackson that is un. Is, it can't can't be proved. It's rather, it's there's so much said also about Robert Narak, who is a, a who was um, another strange individual operating in Northern Ireland at around the same time. But we, we in the Pat Vanuuken Centre and writing the book, Lethal Allies, we really didn't want to stray into the realms of possibles or probables. We wanted to restrict ourselves to things that we could absolutely stand over in terms of written evidence. And so much and all as it was frustrating to us that we couldn't, there are things that we believed that we couldn't put in the book. We restrained ourselves because so much that's been written about Northern Ireland is maybe 70%, 80%, 90% true. But if you don't know which bits are the true bits and which bits aren't, then you can't really believe any of it. And we were determined when we were writing the book that we would not um, use any kind of journalistic license at all. And we would restrict ourselves to what we absolutely could prove either from the RUC files or from direct um, eyewitness evidence, or some some way that was demonstrably provable that we didn't wasn't conjecture, it wasn't propaganda, because it there's the that is of limited value, you know, very limited value, whereas truth that can be that there is evidence for is of great value indeed, and we respect that and we respect our families and we don't want to give them what the dogs in the streets say we want to give them something that they can believe and hold on to as true
1: um we 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 touched on it um we touched on it there briefly um but but like for, for anyone who might know can you give us a bit of a, a bit of a sorry a bit of information about the the Dublin Monaghan bombing and the link that we have the the evidence we have linking um linking collusion to this case like like linking the British Army or or, or UC? See...
0: Well the Dublin Monaghan bombings that took place in May 1974, there were three bombs in Dublin, one bomb in Monaghan. Um, and it was unusual inasmuch as the UVF neither uh, neither before nor since um have managed to to construct bombs of that nature. Um, and we also the uh, the Baron inquiries into the Dublin Monaghan bombings found that there was that there were members obviously the the bombs were the bombings were carried out by people from north of the border. Uh, we do believe that the bombs were constructed, probably imported down the the uh, and that and they were stored. We believe they were stored in the home of an IUC man. Called James Mitchell in South Armagh near the village of Glenanne, indeed, um, and that the bombers were known to the police on on in the north, uh, um, and there was very very little. Very, the Garda in the south handed over the Garda in the south virtually handed over the inquiry into Dublin on, and bombings to the to the police in the north. There was there was very little. Very the 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 inquiry was closed down virtually after. Two or three weeks, uh, and just there was no no further inquiries made, um, and the names of the people that we believe were involved in the Dublin Monaghan bombings were were also names that were linked to the Glenanne gang as well, um, and that they were known of. They were they, they were well, for example we found a list of names of known loyalists, a list that was created by um, by a member of the British Army. A list whose name is Colin Wallace, and he's another whistleblower, rather like, uh, rather like John Weir. Um, and uh, on that list of loyalists are the names of the people that we believe were involved in in Dublin Monaghan, uh, and they were known to the police at that time, but they weren't questioned or or uh, they weren't questioned about their involvement in the Dublin Monaghan bombings. Uh, they just went to ground, and then they emerged later to carry out further attacks.
1: I was going to say I, I think it's fair to say that probably like of all the killings um uh attributed attributed to the gang probably like 80 90 percent were probably more on, on an individual basis they were like shootings um but but then you know the, the, there was also the um there was also the the car bomb double man and uh, another one which was actually supposed to be a bombing but ended up being a shooting was was something you mentioned the miami showban massacre Um, If you could, for for anyone who might know a bit about that, can can you fill us in a small bit?
0: Yes. um, The Miami show band were one of of Ireland's premier show bands. This is in the era before the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, when uh, the show bands were the big, big deal in Ireland. And people came together from both sides of the community um, to 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 large halls in both rural and and urban areas uh, to dance the night away to rock and roll. And the Miami show Band were 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 big, and uh, they'd just given a, a concert in Banbridge and County Down, and they were on their way home. Uh, that crossed. They were on their way to cross the border when they were stopped on the side of the road between Banbridge and the border, and um, by by what they believed was a UDR checkpoint, a National Defence Regiment checkpoint, and ordered out of the van and lined up on the side of the road. And what the plan was, the original plan, the loyalist plan was to put a bomb in the van, let the let the band members get back into the van again. Um, and they were going to put it under a seat, let, the, let the, the, uh, in under under cover of darkness, let the band members back in the van again, and the bomb would explode. They had planned. The loyalists had planned. and everybody would assume that it was the Miami show band who were transporting. Uh, bombs or explosives um, as they travelled up and down the country. But what the plan went wrong from their point of view, from the loyalist point of view, um, and the bomb exploded prematurely, killing two members of the of the loyalist gang and the other gang members then opened up on the band members standing on the side of the road, um, and it was an, an, a scene of carnage. Um, and it was, but two UDR men were later Convicted for their role, uh, but Jacks Robin Jackson, who was a former UDR man, he wasn't convicted, but he was clearly involved in it. We have no doubt about that.
1: When you say involved, does that he he was there on the night pulling the trigger? Well,
0: we think he was there on the night or planned it. Probably, probably both, actually. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, I can't prove that. But we, there is evidence that he was involved. Um, it was his part of the world. He was. Born and brought up very close to where the miami show band were were basically stopped and, and slaughtered you know um and uh that was we believe that was his work
1: yeah um we we we, we mentioned it a, a bit earlier um but like for example john we are like Uh, A John Weir could could very much be like like a rogue, you know, a rogue officer who decides to help out loyalists and and paramilitaries. But if it it was just him, um, then, you know, it's still collusion, but but it's not that bad if if superior officers had no knowledge and stuff. But but I but I think it's clear from um, from Weir's affidavit in 99 as well and and from other evidence that 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 his superior officers did know they they might not have been playing a hand, but they they knew and, and turned a blind eye. Is that correct?
0: yeah i mean we think uh, we think it went right up to the top um uh, that uh, investigations into what Weir was up to uh, were known were known about and uh, the file uh, again it's very complicated it, it, the whole point of evidence and cross referencing is that you what you take very complicated issues and very very strong forensic evidence and you cross reference it uh, and there is evidence that um knowledge of what Jackson was up to went right to the very top, but people chose not to see. I mean, if people see things in files that worries them and concerns them, they can either investigate or they can close the file up and put it away and say, I, I, I choose I don't want to see that. It's too too big for me. I don't want to see that. Um, and we we think that that that's what happened in some cases that that the knowledge of what Jackson was up to went right to the top. but there was a decision made that it was too too dangerous and too potentially um, a, a can of worms that, that was that they chose not to investigate.
1: Um, l- like we said, um, to in order to like make allegations, especially like in a book um, of collusion, you 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 do need very strong evidence. It can be incredibly tough to come by. Um, you know, it, it kind of exists in in, in the shadows but um this this the this Glenine, Glenine gang and the 72 to 78 period would you say that's like the like the strongest
0: well put it this way um nobody has been able to lay a finger on anything in the book since it was published nearly 10 years ago um and it's not for want of trying um i know i know that uh, a senior police officer senior officer in the police service of northern ireland Went to a member of the het who'd helped us and asked him to read the book and to uh, write a critique of it. And he said he said he'd already read the book three times and there wasn't anything in it that he didn't believe was true. Um, it it was the book was named in a high court action as um, an exhibit in an official legal action that the families and their lawyers took to demand a new inquiry into the alleg- into what we said in the book. So, And there is now an inquiry going on right as we speak into what's in the allegations, well, not more than allegations, the, the, the facts that we revealed in the book. And there's a huge inquiry going on, and it's being headed by the former Chief Constable of Bedfordshire, John Boucher, uh, he set up an inquiry called Operation Denton, which has been going now for over four years, and is continuing to investigate um, in the in the files and in the evidence and in the forensics and in the ballistics um, the the claims that we make. And uh, that's due. He's due to to bring forward a report next year on the on the veracity or otherwise of what we say. And so we are we're, we're waiting that with some interest, as you can imagine, as are the families, because the families, although what happened to them, a great deal of they've got a great deal of truth, thank goodness, um, because of our work with the HET and with the Baron Inquiry and with other information that we've managed to be. They haven't had any acknowledgement from the state. I mean, the book has been out now for nearly 10 years. There was a film about it, which was shown on RTE in Dublin. And the, there's not one single solitary politician has written to any of the families to apologize and to acknowledge what happened to their loved ones and to say, look, you know, we, the evidence is there. We're terribly sorry. It shouldn't have happened you suffered as a result of this, your whole lives were turned upside down. You've lived with grief and with the horror of knowing that the state, far from upholding your human rights, destroyed your family. And we are terribly sorry about this. And it won't happen again. And we acknowledge what was done that was so wrong. Not one, not one family has had either a letter or a meeting at which anyone from the state side has acknowledged and apologized what was inflicted on them by the forces of the state that were meant to protect them. And the only legitimacy any state has is that it abides by the rule of law, that it's elected by the people, and it abides by the rule of law. Well, In Northern Ireland, they're not elected by the people, and they don't, they didn't. At a time of conflict, where it was more important that the police and the army and the courts and the lawyers upheld human rights, when it was more important that that went, that that happened, it didn't happen. That they were betrayed by the state that was there to supposedly to protect them. And individuals were killed and families were wrecked, livelihoods were destroyed, children were brought up without their fathers, and this was done with the knowledge of the state and yet not one family has been approached we we never even got a meeting i put in for a meeting with the with uh, the secretary of state for northern ireland at the time when the book came out i even offered her advanced advanced copy of the of the book so that she and her advisors could read it and get their get their responses ready in a in a in a reasonable way i offered her exclusive an advance copy of what we were going to say in the book it didn't even take up the offer. And when the book came out and created one hell of a stink and and everybody was aware of what was in it, no, no meetings with the families, no apologies, no acknowledgement, nothing, nothing. It's really unbelievable when you think about it.
1: Would you say that this um, seventy-two to seventy-eight period would be like the worst examples of of British British collusion with, with loyalists, or, or or would it be just kind of the, the worst that you can prove? I, I, is there more that that you it's believe? Unique or, because, it's for? unique
0: because we managed to get we get managed to get the evidence. Um, and we're, who else? Who knows what else is in there? I mean, uh, as we speak, the the British government is is uh, there's a a law a bill before the House of Commons which would end all of this which will mean that families no longer have the have access to the courts to vindicate their rights and to find out what the truth was about how their loved ones were killed because london unique in my in my experiences me in everybody's experience London is the only western democracy that is bringing up an act a bill bill before Parliament to restrict the rights of individual people to find out what happened to their loved ones by by closing off all access through the courts to truth and justice. Uh, they're, uh, uh, close uh, down, they're closing down police They want to close down police ombudsman's inquiries. They want to close down inquests. Because if a new if new evidence emerges and a family is entitled to go to the Northern Ireland Attorney General and ask for a new inquest into their loved one's death, that's not going to happen anymore. Uh, everything is going to be closed down. Uh, You're the, referring to the, the
1: Legacy Reconciliation Bill,
0: the so-called Legacy and Reconciliation Bill, uh, which which academics at Queens who've studied other um, areas of conflict through the world say, would make Pinochet of Chile blush. And this British government is, clo- is, that's what they're proposing to do. It would mean that the kind of information that we got wouldn't, would not be available to other families. It would close everything down. It would close down judicial reviews. It would close down public inquiries. It would close down inquests. It would close down police ombudsman inquiries. Everything. Families will just be told, too bad i mean they are proposing a new a new body but it would not have the same powers to of of enforcing disclosure that the family has currently had before the course and i mean the current procedures that families have access to are not perfect by any means but for example the Ballymurphy murphy families they got a new inquest and all of the Ballymurphy murphy victims were were Innocent, according to the coroner's findings, and that, that kind of inquest will never will never happen again. It'll be that kind of thing will be closed down completely, and the kind of inquiry that John Boucher is currently involved in that won't be that won't won't be possible in the future. The police ombudsman is carrying out inquiries into the glenarn gang and other instances where there is evidence of police mal wrongdoing. That'll all be closed down. Everything will be closed down, apart from this London, London, this creation, this kind of Frankenstein's monster that London is creating. That will not have the same. You, you know, in order to get to the truth, you have to be very clever, and you have to have the law on your side. Uh, and if you don't have those powers of disclosure, of compelling witnesses to appear before you, if you don't have that kind of powers that the, that the courts have. Then you won't get to the truth. You'll get some of the truth, but some of the truth is not what people want. They want all the truth about what happened. Because some of the truth means that some of the lies are still still continue to exist. You
1: you mentioned uh, John Boucher. I, I, I knew the name from um from Operation Canova, which is going on at the moment. Yes. It's been it's been put back like like a number of times, next month, next month, next yes. month. And um, you, you you mentioned um, um, Operation Denton there. Uh, yes, well, Operation
0: Canova is the umbrella term for, for everything that John Bouch is involved in. But underneath Operation Canova, there are other operations that are continuing on. And one of them is Operation Denton, which is looking into the Glen gang. There are other uh, inquiries, there are other murders and other deaths that he's also investigating. But Operation Denton is the one that relates to the Glen gang, yes. Um, and we're hoping. I mean he he is hoping to get uh, Operation Canova. The original Operation Canova was when he was asked to investigate claims that um an IRA man as Freddy Scatci was involved in it in, in, was a double agent and was carrying out murders on behalf of the British state uh, in the Republican community. And yes, he's been investigating that for many years, and it is due to be to be to be made public. Uh, at any moment, actually, because he's he's gone through a lot of the what's called the maximalization process, which is a process by which if you're bringing forward a public inquiry that is going to be critical of certain areas of state involvement, then you have to give let them see what you're going to be saying about them. So they can uh, they can not so that they can change it, but so that they can clarify anything or or get their get their view ready to their response ready, you know so the maximalization process has been gone through and and now it's just a question of uh, I think it's it's uh, he's he's recently said that nothing has been redacted on for purposes of national security. Uh, so we're hoping, you know that will tell a tale whether whether the what he brings forward in uh, as a report into the allegations about Freddy Scapatici will be very interesting. And will there be files sent to the director of public prosecutions, not just files against Republicans, but also files against uh, security force members, members of the security forces who, uh, who, who handled Scappaticci and who, who, who tolerated his actions while he was still a member of the IRA in carrying out, allegedly carrying out murders? Yeah.
1: Um, as someone who's more familiar with, I mean, obviously you, you've dug through evidence, you've you've read more government reports than 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 almost almost anyone who's who's interested in in the subject. Um, do you? I mean, a lot of people, including me, to be honest. Um, when I hear about like like an Operation Canova, um, I uh, I wouldn't hold my breath too much, and I'd be a bit more kind of bit more cynical. But like, I I wouldn't expect. I wouldn't expect anything really damning that really implicated anyone to come out. You know, I, I, I don't think it would be allowed. I, I think there's too many people um, who would kind of have dirty hands, you know. W- w- would, you be, would you be of a similar
0: mind? Yes, yes. I mean, uh, I, I, I would share your cynicism about that. But while I was working for the Pat for New Consent, I was working on behalf of families. And was one thing for certain, if you don't set off on a journey, you're never going to get anywhere. So we we set off on a journey with them. Uh, we didn't know where we were going to end up, but we knew damn rightly if we just didn't start on that journey, and if we didn't go the whole way, we would never get anywhere. And people uh, and people who done dreadful things in the shadows would get away with it. We don't know for certain that we're going to that the that the culprits are going to be held to account as they should be. Uh, or even held to the light, like they should be. But we know that if we don't try, we wouldn't get anywhere. And it it's it's been very, very hard on, on the families. Um, but they have, they have, I mean, they've got a whole huge amount of, of detail and evidence in the in the reports that they got. I mean, the 60, 70-page reports they got from the HET um, it, back in the day before the het was disbanded um, they got a, they got a lot now some of them some of them are very happy with what they with the evidence that they've got and it has it has given them a great deal of um a consolation others of them feel get more and more angry the more they find out about what happened the more angry they get some people want prosecutions some people want the police officers brought to, to book Brought to court and charged with murder for what they did. Others of them are quite happy and they're quite satisfied. That's a wrong word, but they they feel get some consolation from seeing it written down in black and white um, in a report from the HET in a book by the sort of book that we produced. That has given them a great deal of comfort. Um, others want more, but one thing is for certain: if you don't try. You know, and at least if you try and you don't get, you can say, "Well, I did everything I possibly could to vindicate my father's life and death." Um, you know, I did what I could, and the state got me. They, the state, wouldn't admit it. The state wouldn't apologize. The state wouldn't acknowledge what it did. But I did everything I could, and that gives a lot. Some people a lot of comfort. You know, they feel that they've done the right thing by their dead relative.
1: What? Would I be right in saying that no matter how much no matter how much evidence and linking comes to light from from I know from Operation Canova or from, from, from any other type like that, that no mem- like no ex intelligence handler or um intelligence officer, like 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 even like Scapatici's officers, if if it was proven that they knew and even were like telling him to commit murders and so on, would, would I be right in saying that if if strong evidence came out to suggest that and um, that, that e- e- even then, that there would be no trial or conviction. It's just not something that would happen.
0: Well, it is very difficult because the passage of time is such. You know, uh, eyewitnesses are dead. Um, forensic and ballistic evidence. Can you prove that nobody at any stage has interfered with any of the ballistic or forensic evidence? Um, the, the longer these things go on for, the harder it is. To prove in a court of law because as you know you know some evidence is allowed in a court of law other evidence is is not is not admissible under the law so like for, for example intelligence isn't admissible evidence unless it's backed up by something else i mean the only evidence there can possibly be is eyewitness evidence with the passage of time that is less and less likely to happen because people die people's memories fade uh, ballistic and forensic evidence, which is also potentially corrupted, depending on how secure it has been kept for decades. Um, intelligence isn't evidence, so you know when you get to a court of law, you know unless you can have unless you've got a piece of paper on which it is written, I, Joe, Joe Blogs, authorized confession evidence. That's less likely as well. So it is it. We're very frank and very honest with people. And we, you know, we try to uh, limit expectations. But, I mean, as you've seen with the Bloody Sunday families, most of, them, most of the families were quite happy with the report that they got from Saville that said that their relatives were innocent victims who were mown down, unjustifiably killed by members of the parachute regiment. Other family members want their day in court. They want their loved one's life to be vindicated. And for those responsible for taking it away illegally to be held accountable through a court of law. And we, we don't, I mean, the Pat Consent Centre that I work for, we don't tell families which, which road they should take. It's up to them to choose. Um, and we support them whatever road they take. Um, but it is very, very difficult at this stage to see the guilty ones brought to court, brought to book. It's very difficult to see how that would be possible with the, with a huge passion and time. I mean, we. When you say you're cynical, well, we're cynical too. Uh, we we have a the three Ds. We call it British policy, being the three Ds, which is deny, deny everything, deny it, until it's no longer possible to deny it. In which case, delay, 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 delay. Go through, get, use every possible legal mechanism you can think of to delay anybody being held to account. And then finally death, wait until the people, the relatives, the sons, the daughters, the grandchildren have died and are therefore not screaming blue murder, looking to get justice. So those are the three Ds. and we, we characterize British policy on, in Northern Ireland on these matters as the three Ds, deny, delay and death, and just hope that people just go away and forget all about it, or alternatively do what they're doing now which is bring a bell in that closes everything down, closes everything down. Or, you know, the creates, as I said, creates a body which does not have the powers that is necessary to hold people to account through the courts.
1: Um, is there any is there any precedent for for what's what they're doing with the legacy and rec- reconciliation, like like making it so um, from this point on, uh, you you can't? No, you can't back there to, isn't. There's none. In, no, it, I mean, in, I'm in, relying, in, in, relying in on academics rec- at rec-
0: Queen's University for saying that. You know, they've looked at it. Now they've made loads of changes. You know, they brought in little bits here and they've tinkered around the edges. But in essence, what they're doing, uh, I mean, you know. Even Pinochet in Chile had limited, you know, his, 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 the courts there were limited. This is a blanket closing down of every possible access to justice from families. It's unprecedented anywhere in the world, let alone a Western European so-called liberal democracy. It's just saying the law, we forget about the law. When it comes to Northern Ireland, we forget about the law. Uh,
1: it you, doesn't exist. I see. Um. For, for um. It, anyone. Anyone is familiar with the with the troubles is probably familiar with the name um Paffenuk and the you you said you, you yes. said Pat Center, um. That that's um. His 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 murder. Uh. He, he was shot. He was shot eating dinner in front of his family. It was Particularly brutal. Um. Is there is there strong evidence? Um. Is there strong evidence? Well, the British have already
0: be- admitted this collusion there. Um, and David Cameron has apologised in the House of Commons, uh, as it's saying that there was collusion in Pat Finucane's murder. But the, we're named after... The the, the organisation I worked for until very recently, until June, the Pat Finucane Centre, is named after Pat, Pat Finucane because we believe, like he believed, in using the law to vindicate people's human rights. Um rather than any other method of enforcing the law. is using the law to, to, uh, to, to vindicate, using the law as it exists to vindicate people's human rights. Um, the the, the, the Fanucan family are very competent and capable of conducting their own campaign for justice, for truth and justice themselves, and we support them. But we, we have limited, you know, they conduct their own campaign. They're not one of the families for whom we advocate. We're named after Pat Finucane, but the Finucane family won't settle for anything other than a full, independent, public inquiry. Um, And they, because they believe that the culpability for the murder of Pat Finucane went right to the very top of the British state, and by the top, I mean 10 Downing Street. Uh, And they don't—they believe that. That that truth will never emerge unless there's a full public, independent inquiry where witnesses can be compelled to appear, and that the it, that those conducting the inquiry have the full rights to, and full access to all documentation and witnesses that are compellable before the inquiry, and any other anything um, less than that will not get to the full truth that's what they believe and they won't settle for anything less and they're fighting on to get that
1: i believe um, uh, i think i follow him on twitter um i believe pat fenukan son is um is a lawyer also no
0: yes um he has two he had two sons michael who's a solicitor in dublin and john fenukan who's a solicitor in belfast and a recently elected mp for Sinn fein in north belfast he's a politician and a lawyer and michael is a lawyer in this, in dublin down south yes both his both his sons are lawyers yeah
1: um i'll i'll let you go there um i'll let you go there soon enough I, is there anything you'd like to leave us with um any yeah just to, just kind of any final thoughts on the on the issue you know
0: well assuming that most of your listeners are in north america i'd just like to thank those of them who've helped us and given us great support over the years, because there's one thing the British are very susceptible to and are very sensitive about, and that is the views of uh, of Americans, the the special relationship, as it's called, called in London. I don't know what it's called in Washington, but we know we 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 greatly appreciate the support and and we've we've had throughout the years from Irish America. Uh, because we know that the Brits are particularly sensitive about American public opinion, and they care about what Americans think. Um, and they don't give a damn about what we think. We're merely their citizens. Uh, uh, but they do give a damn about what the Americans think. So I, we're very grateful, and I'm very grateful, for all the support I've had through the years on the three speaking tours I did at the States, and the support I had in DC, in giving evidence to congressional committees on these very, very difficult, difficult issues. And um, and let us hope that, uh, that this kind of horrible, obscene collusion never re- occurs again in Irish or British history. Because it, it didn't bring the conflict to an end one minute. If anything, it prolonged the conflict. Because people had no support, no confidence in in the administration of justice no confidence in the police the courts the state it merely prolonged the conflict and, it was and, wrong morally and, and wrong practically
1: and of course all this um, i meant to say it earlier but like like all this all this collusion if you, if if you, if you're just a, a civilian who you know who isn't involved in uh in, in any in any paramilitary groups, like if, if if you if you see this happening, if you see law people who are supposed to be law enforcement um, t- teaming up with the with loyalists, I mean, it it would drive people into the arms of 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 the IRA. Absolutely, yeah.
0: absolutely counterproductive, even from even even by their own standards, counterproductive. Um, Thank th- th- you very much.
1: Oh, of course, and um, th- thank you very much. Um everything you shared, very interesting, very, very insightful. And um, we we might speak again, uh, maybe after um, Canova or Legacy um, comes out. We, we 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 might have more. Uh, we we might have more to discuss. You know.
0: Yeah, the story is far from over yet. It's a long road. We're we're, we're not at the end of the road yet. By a long short, to mix metaphors. <laughs> th- thank you very much. I, I appreciate. It.